0: Jolie, your branding badass, and welcome to my new podcast, Branding Matters. My guest today is Adam Morgan, the highly respected author of Eating the Big Fish, How Challenger Brands Can Compete Against Brand Leaders. This international bestseller not only popularized the term challenger brand, it also outlined a process for doing more with less, and its principles have been widely praised and much imitated around the world. Adam's newest and, dare I say, last book is called Overthrow 2, 10 Strategies from a New Generation of Challengers. It's a provocative and practical guide to focusing on what really matters. I invited Adam to be a guest on my show today to discuss challenger brands. I wanted to learn what makes a brand a challenger and what it means to adopt a challenger mindset. I also wanted to learn how COVID has changed the way challenger brands go to market And I was especially curious to learn about Adam's surprising fetish, which he was generous enough to share with us today. Adam, welcome to Branding Matters.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. It's
0: so nice having you here, especially all the way from the UK. What part of the UK are you in?
1: I'm in London. I'm in southwest London, the so possibly good. the rainiest part of southwest London it's possible to be in. It's called St. St. Margaret's.
0: Okay. We actually have quite a few listeners um, in the UK and in London. Ah, so okay. And I read recently that you guys are going to be able to go back in the pub soon. How are you feeling about that?
1: I am uh, indecently in excited. In fact, today uh, today, today yeah. is the, the day that Britain opens up. So it's very appropriate that we're talking right at this moment.
0: Right. I shall probably
1: leave. I'll put down <laughs> my headphones and head out to the pub straight away.
0: I bet. I'm sure there's going to be a lineup too. Well, let's get right into it. I want to talk about challenger brands. So mm-hmm. you coined that phrase. Is that correct?
1: I didn't coin it, but I popularized it. So the expression did exist um, in, in the 90s, but wasn't widely used. I wrote a book in 99 called Eating the Big Fish that that popularized the concept in effect and, and made it uh, well-known within marketing.
0: Yes, and that was an international bestseller. I can see how it would have popularized it. So can you share about what a challenger brand is?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, in, in any kind of market, right, there's obviously a market leader and then there's a bunch of other brands. And, and the fact you are second or third or fourth does not make you a challenger, it just makes you a second or third or fourth. So challenge is primarily about a mindset. It's saying I've got a business ambition that is typically bigger than my conventional marketing resources. And I need to do something kind of bold or ambitious to close the implications of that gap. And as part of that, I need to change the criteria for choice in my favor. So I'm going to challenge something about the degree or the codes or conventions of the culture that says actually you know what perhaps there was a time and a place for all of that but we actually need to rethink our choices and i'm part of a newer fresher generation of choices that is actually a better choice for you at this moment so challenges challenge something it's not always challenging somebody i think we tend to think of it as being david versus goliath but in fact that's kind of an old-fashioned way of thinking about challenges it's much more challenging something about the the way that the consumer experiences or decide something about the category that switches the choice to, to one that suits them and their strength.
0: Can you give an example of a popular challenger brand?
1: Well, let's take uh, Tony's only. Do you have Tony's in, in uh, Canada? No. Oh, fantastic. No, no. So this is a Dutch, <laughs> it's a Dutch, wait, you've got a treat coming. It's a Dutch chocolate brand started actually by a Dutch journalist. And this Dutch journalist was doing a report in um thick supply chain in the cocoa industry. Not a terribly exciting, you would have thought, subject. However, what he uncovered was actually that about 30% of cocoa is farmed using unethical practices, including, effectively, modern slavery and child labour. And he was so outraged by this, he decided the only way to solve it was to start his own chocolate brand. So he started a brand called Tony's Chocolate Only, which is great fun, and it's vibrant and colourful, and the chocolate bar itself is distributed into uneven-sized portions when you break it to symbolise the inequality in the supply chain. And he's communicating through this in a very kind of, vivid way. It's a really interesting brand. It's, it's kind of great fun and very vibrant because chocolate has to be that. They've grown to be number one in Holland. They're getting the big Dutch retailers to change their supply chain philosophy. It's now in the UK going off like a train and spreading into Europe. It's a really good example of somebody who's completely changed the conversation because what they're effectively asking us is, do you want slave-free chocolate or do you want the other stuff, right? We've never thought about that conversation before. Completely changes our criteria for choice around chocolate. Of course, there's only one answer, right? If I answer, ask you those two things, you're only going to say one answer. And mm-hmm. that that is a really good example of a challenger. Changing the conversation.
0: I love that. I love that idea of the, breaking up into uneven pieces. It sounds like everything. Well, and it's,
1: yeah. Well, it's just really funny because they they, they get complaints, right? Because people write in and say, look, this is causing a lot of arguments in my family. You know, I buy it for the kids and they divide up between them and, and you know, Sally gets a much bigger chunk than than Harry does. You know, can you not make it evenly split? And I have to write back and say, no, look, the reason we've done this is because we're symbolizing inequality in the supply chain. Just explain that to your kids. Consumer Rights banks oh, that's fantastic. You know, it's really interesting. We sat down and had a big conversation with our kids about it. So they're making the physical structure of the product the thing that they re-educate consumers with. It's Mm-hmm.
0: That's fantastic. What a great, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. So if someone was planning on building a challenger brand, what are some of the different brand characteristics?
1: Well, I, I think first of all, you need to understand what your differences are, right? Because the whole thing about a challenger is amplify your differences. And sometimes those differences that you can have to turn them into strengths in a certain kind of way. So you need to be clear about what your differences are and how to amplify them. I think you need to be prepared to be very selective about what you choose to talk about and what choose not to talk about. So all strategy is about choices, inevitably. But for a challenger in particular, it's about sacrifice and overcommitment. I am going to not try and appeal to these people. I'm not going to talk about these messages. I'm not going to talk about these things so that I can talk specifically about this to this group of people and really overcommit against that. So it's about being very specific about choices. And then I think, thirdly, it's about being quite bold right you, you need to uh, i saw a fantastic interview with somebody who's a, a band called girls Aloud. i don't know if you were a fan of, of kind of 90s girl bands but anyway girls <laughs> Aloud, very successful kind of british band and she she goes on stage She, she just was on stage i think uh, last year for the first time and she was being coached by her stage coach for her first performance and she'd been used to being on video so she'd been used to the video picking up kind of slight nuances of her eye movements or her hands and the stage coach says that doesn't work when you're on stage, right? Because you have to make these big declarative gestures that can be seen right at the back of the gallery. So I think the third part of being a challenger is really, you need to think of yourself as being on stage rather than on TV. You need to make these big declarative gestures that people will notice, even if they're not looking for you. Because, you know, the world is saturated by choice. Challenger, your job actually is not to expand the choice available to Jolie. What you want to do is reduce the choice available to Jolie. Go back to the... Um, So Tony's Chocolate Only example, you're trying to say, actually, there are only two choices, slave free chocolate or the other (laughs) kind. So so it's about reducing that choice. So so that sense of kind of drama that says, look, this is actually the thing that really matters. Isn't that the thing that you want? that's a really key part of being a challenger.
0: You mentioned bravery earlier. I would think that would be a one up there too. A lot of brands would be too intimidated or too timid to take on that and do something like that, even as simple, like you said, as taking the chocolate and making it different pieces or even just making that statement.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. But I think that's one of the joys of being a challenger, which is you you don't have to be all things to all people. You can do brave things. And you know what? If 30% of the people don't like it, that's absolutely fine. as long As the other twenty twenty five. however many people you're really trying to get to? Notice it. Pay attention to it. Talk about it. Share it with their friends. That's the thing that really matters. So you're quite prepared to perhaps be even a little polarizing, because actually you don't need to appeal to everybody and don't want to appeal to everybody.
0: Are challenger brands are they just startups or new companies, or can a challenger brand be an already existing brand that decides you know later on in their lifespan that they want to become a challenger brand?
1: That's such a fabulous question. So I, I've been doing a bit of work recently exploring brands that are over 100 years old and have chosen to be challengers. Because I think this is a really interesting example. Because as you say, that the, the mythology is young, hungry, single, charismatic founder, you know, who can kind of drive the company forward. So let's look for really old companies with uh, kind of committees in charge of them uh, that have been around for ages. Uh, can they be challengers? And so let me give you an example. So Tillamook, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Tillamook. It's a, it's a dairy cooperative. I need to spend the, more
0: time in the UK, obviously. <laughs> well,
1: no, this is in the US. This is in the US. Oh, what's it? Almost, well, how do you, how it's do you pronounce Tillam- it? It's called Tillamook, T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K. Tillamook. so it's a, okay it's it's a dairy cooperative in the pacific northwest of the united states uh it's got 90 constituent dairies that make it up so it's not a single owner driver they've been around for over 100 years so it's not a small hip funky startup it's in the dairy business so this is about as ordinary as an entity as it's possible to be and in 2012 they appointed a new ceo patrick who kind of came in and said look We've been flatlining for a number of years. I think there's a much bigger opportunity to take a challenger mindset. So he he says, you know, what would it mean for us to be a challenger? And so first of all, they start to look at what's happening in the food business in 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 the world, but specifically in in the U.S. And says, well, look, you know, we're kind of up against, you know, big food, right? The worst of big food. We're, big food companies who are selling cheese tasting products they are not even allowed to call cheese anymore, you know, in, in terms of technical description. There's not enough dairy in it. So, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <do> you <laughs> know what I Cheese-like mean? Cheese-like so, or cheese-flavored. Yeah, exactly. So they, yeah. they create this big food. We are the antidote to, to big food. And everything we represent in terms of real farmers and real taste and real people making this is the antidote to it. And they produce this very dramatic series of communications which show, you know, this synthetic ghastliness being blown up in front of you is part of a campaign where they talk about dairy done right. So they are the challenger to big food and everything that's wrong with big food. Anyway, to cut a long story short, over a five-year period, they increased sales by 70% and they increased profits by 300%. That is about a straightforward, old-fashioned company as it's possible to be. Adopting a challenger mindset, being bolder than they would have been, picking an enemy, going up against it, and demonstrating the power of that to create growth through a challenge of mindset. To your very long answer to your question, if you're prepared to have a go, and, and give it enough rigor and boldness, I do think any company can choose to be a challenger.
0: Well, I think that's a great answer. I don't think it was too long because especially with the world right now, I mean, everything is changing. The way brands are going to market, the way people are branding, the way the world is. So I think there's a lot of companies and I think of clients that I work with that are looking for ways to change up what they're doing.
1: I agree. I think it's true. And of course, the other interesting thing about this is that the kind of conventions that challengers introduce then become the kind of market default, right? So big companies like P&G have, let's say, a whole bunch of new brands talking about positive, body positive imagery, for instance, and eventually they have to respond. So everybody has to keep upping their game. And the challenger has to keep upping their game because actually the thing that you talk about five years ago is no longer going to be the same cutting edge breakthrough idea because everybody's copied you and the market leader has copied you it's just become the default setting so you're Mm -hmm. right there's this continuous push to kind of upgrade and update and and move on and and that's what makes marketing so exciting today
0: Mm -hmm. well and you know that's interesting so we talked about your first book that was eating the big fish how challenger brands can compete against brand leaders and that book came out i think the second edition came out in 2009 is that correct
1: yes that's right yeah yeah.
0: okay and so now here we are 2021 and you've just written and launched a new book called overthrow 10 ways to tell a challenger story. So what motivated you to write the second book and how does it differ from the first
1: one? Well, first of all, I have a terrible compulsion to write books. And (laughs) uh it's really unhealthy. And and every time I promise my wife it's absolutely because she helps me do them, it's absolutely Mm -hmm. the last one we'll ever write because absolutely completely miserable experience. Have you ever tried to write a book yourself? Okay. (laughs) Writing the book thing is is fairly miserable. But anyway, I decided that I wanted to I I get from you know if you're if you specialize in challenges and you kind of evangelize about challenges and talk about them, you get frustrated by people being stuck in the old myths and the old frameworks. And one of the old myths is this David versus Goliath myth, right? It's about challenging somebody. It's a smaller player challenging a bigger player. And it's about being loud and noisy and shouty and getting up in their face. And at some level, of course, that is a very successful strategy for some kinds of challenges. You look at what Wendy's is doing in the US, for instance, it's doing that really successfully with McDonald's at the moment. But most challenges from the last 15 years uh, haven't been challenging somebody, they've been challenging something. So I mm-hmm. wanted to create a, a tool whereby somebody who was interested in being a challenger themselves, whether they were a young brand or whether they were a, an older brand, had a broader range of kind of ways of thinking about what that meant. And so it was just a way to try and so give a sort of simple path forward for them to think about different narratives that they could they could use.
0: Can you share what some of those narratives are?
1: Yeah, so I'll give you an example. So a couple of examples. So you look at oatly um, oat milk. So oatly oat milk is one of a range of a new sort of set of products coming in, which are plant based, and they have created this whole concept of the post milk generation so they're taking on one of the most loved things in the world which is dairy or western world which is dairy right we all love dairy we have lovely associations of milk and childhood and family fridges and that kind of stuff so it's quite hard to move people on from that so what they've taken is a kind of challenger narrative which is called the next generation narrative which says look there was a time and a place where actually dairy was right you know we it was a great way to kind of give us protein and cows were a great kind of protein manufacturers for us. But actually, the world has moved on now. And we're in a situation with the environmental crisis where we, we just can't go on having cows having the same kind of effect on the planet as they are. So let's move on to more plant-based alternatives. So that was very much kind of, you know, next generation. That might have been right then. That's fine. I'm not criticizing you for liking dairy, but actually we all have to move on now. So that's more sort of next generation approach. That's completely different from, for instance, um, someone like Dollar Shave Club, who you might call an irreverent maverick. So what they are is kind of very kind of out there, very fun, very kind of feisty, kind of poking beige in the eye. Mocking vanilla and and the kind of the the sort of staid conventionality of big brands. That kind of very famous ad that they did about our Blades are effing great. You know, it's had 25 million views on YouTube. Why? We love the kind of anarchic, punky kind of humor of the entire thing. Completely different kind of narrative there. Local heroes. Local heroes say, big international choices, not right for us. We're from round here. Deep roots round here. We know you. You know us. What comes from Canada or what comes from Uganda or what comes from, you know, this particular town in China is better uh, than the big international option. There's a ra- there's a whole range of them, each of which I think has a lot of power. You just have to choose which is the relevant one for you.
0: Mm-hmm. So would you say there's a new challenger generation now that you're trying to appeal to?
1: I do think there's a new challenger generation in yeah. the sense that people are constantly looking for something new. I, I was reading only today, actually, that you probably know this. Google say that 15% of their searches every day are ones that have never been searched before. So people are constantly searching for new things. So that this sense of people constantly searching for new and looking for new is a relatively new thing. Hmm. Equally, I think that they've been educated, this new generation of consumers, to be the real disruptors, we talk about brands as disruptors. I think consumers are mm-hmm. disruptors, right? Because they've been educated by Uber and fast fashion and next generation, you know, an impossible burger to say, surely anything is possible now. And it's actually, it should be more or less free and delivered to my door in two seconds, you know, because I've used Amazon Prime. So there's this really set of unreasonable expectations, which encourages, forces, I think, companies and brands to really question what they're doing. There's a, there's a lovely example I love of, there's a Toyota dealer, right, car dealer in the US called Toyota One. And car dealers, you could argue, haven't really changed a lot over quite a lot of time. I don't know when the last time you bought a car was, but I mean, car dealership experience then would have been probably <laughs> the same as the one, the previous one. And Toyota One is saying, well, look, you know, we, we've got to do something that, that shows and demonstrates that we are kind of in, in moving with the times. And so when you have your car serviced for the first time, so after whatever it is, 3,000 miles or something, you take it in and they put it in a kind of a bay and you walk across to get your kind of free complimentary cappuccino. And they've changed, sorry, they've, they've serviced your car within three minutes. So you don't actually even have time to go over, finish the coffee. Or they ask you to come back again. And they do it so quickly that, you know, you, Jolie, think, well, how is it possible that you've serviced my car? You must have kind of shortchanged it some kind of yeah. way. And the answer is they've kind of approached it a bit like a Formula One pit. So they've had five people working on it at the same time and they've had it jacked up in the pits. But they're doing it because they recognize it's a new generation of unreasonable consumers and they need to, in some way, in some parts of their service, deliver against that because that's the new challenger generation that they're having to serve. It.
0: I saw something and I can't remember it was a video and I don't remember if it was on your website where I thought it was great actually and I think it was um push for pizza is that okay.
1: yes yeah, that's right can
0: you can you share that because I love that I thought that was a great concept and you know you talk about unreasonable consumerism I thought that was sort of a good analogy of that
1: yeah so this is a bunch <laughs> of teen- teenagers a few years ago uh, and that the, the video that sort of promotional video reflects the moment the Eureka moment where they're sitting back after clearly a very good night. I'm not going to begin to suggest what it might have been a good night on, but they've had a very good <laughs> night, enjoying all sorts of things that have made them feel good. And they've got the munchies. And so they're lying around saying, oh, I one of the guys says, I really want a pizza. And the other guy says, I really want a pizza too. I just don't want to have to order it. And so one guy goes, well, you know, great. Well, wh- what if you had an app where you could just push for pizza? And they go, fantastic. That's the idea. And I thought that was such a hilarious thought because you would have thought that. If you want a pizza, it's reasonable to expect you to order it, right? Surely, you know, either you either want it, so you want it but no, unreasonable consumer, Uber's children, right? all Uber's children. We oh, don't even yeah. want to do that. We don't yeah. even want to do that. We want yeah. it to just push and the pizza comes.
0: Yeah. No, I thought that was a great idea. Do you have uh, Skip the Dishes in the UK? I think it's just Canadian. I think it's just Canadian. So have you heard of DoorDash in the US? No. Okay. So when everything closed down, restaurants and stuff, you couldn't go and order anything and a lot of them weren't delivering. So you can literally go on an app. I wish I had my phone I could show you. And you can pick a restaurant and pick the food on this app and you have to sign up. And literally all you do is press it and then you can follow it And see when the driver goes to the restaurant, picks up your food, (laughs) then brings it to your house, and then you even get a text saying, okay, he's going to be there in five minutes, and then he drops it off, and then now it's been dropped off. So it's the easiest way to too easy actually and you can just order food all the time <laughs> do you have anything similar to that in the uk at all
1: well we have we have uber eats and that kind of stuff Oh, uber but eats, okay yeah but it, but it sounds like there's you can actually see the dish do you it's kind of like a happy meal thing you just click on the, the visual thing of what you want is that right
0: well it's 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 any restaurant so millions of restaurants sign up just go on the menu and you but you just press it where i'm going with that is i think it's changed you talk about again i love that unrealistic unrealistic Consumerism. Anytime you order mm-hmm. anything or anything. So you want to know, like, why can't they just tell me when they're going to be here? For example, we had to have our Wi Fi mm-hmm. checked and we had the provider to come. And they tell you we're going to be there between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m.
1: Yeah. Right? And, this and, is and 2020.
0: I know. I know. how come oh. i can get my food and they can tell me the specific the specific second it's going to be delivered but i would need to get my wi-fi checked and they can only tell me between this time
1: yeah and and, and furthermore to your food point and tracking it why can't i track well, at least let me track where the person is right so i can go out to the shops and i can see if they're going to be here in an hour or two hours or three hours but they won't even do that and and you're right and you're outraged by it because as you say the <laughs> yeah. ones moved on
0: Right. It's so funny. So I, I love the concept of challenger brands, and I think it's a big thing. Do you think challenger brands, especially today, are they purpose-driven?
1: I think a lot of challenges are purpose-driven. I don't think they all need to be, no. I mean, I, I think clearly if you are kind of a missionary and you know, you're driven by that kind of uh, zeal, then yes. Um, but if you are an you know, uh, uh, irreverent maverick, you don't need to be. However, I think interestingly, one of the influence on, you know, on this is, in, is investors. So as part of Overthrow 2, I went to interview a couple of investors in challenger brands. Uh, about the four or five things they looked for in the challenger before they invested in. Now, these are hard commercial people, right? They're not doing it through philanthropy or altruism. They're looking for the commercial return. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, one of the four or five things they look for is that sense of purpose or what one of them calls a righteous cause. Because, they say, not only because they kind of want a brand that's trying to do something different, but because they say it's a talent magnet and because it creates an emotional relationship and an emotional kind of fire in the belly of the team at that organization that will allow them to push through the obstacles that will come their way. So actually, it's not just a kind of a nice kind of fluffy thing to have. It actually adds a kind of tenacity and a resilience and a drive within the team Mm -hmm. that they found to be very commercially powerful.
0: But you don't think it's necessary?
1: I don't think it's necessary for all challenger brands, but I do see it being increasingly adopted by them.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely seeing it more and more. So how would you describe the new challenger generation?
1: I think you have to look at the new challenger generation in terms of two sides, right? There's a new generation of customers, of consumers. I'll describe Azuba's children. So this Mm -hmm. is this. Group of people we were just describing who have been educated by Generation Challenges to expect the world and expect it now and not have to wait for anything. And they want it to be free, ideally, and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's one side. And then the other side, I think, is that there is a new generation of people coming through for whom actually starting their own challenger is aspirational in a way that never has been before. So again, let me go back to these investors uh, that I was interviewing. A fabulous guy, Ernie Schmidt from an investment company called The Craft And he's a serial investor, serial tech investor. He said, look, you know, 15 years ago, gone to see Ivy League graduates and asked them what they wanted to be, they'd have said, I want to be in banking, right? Or a hedge fund manager. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, if you taught them what they want to be, they'd have said, uh, I want to be in tech. Nowadays, you go along and ask them what they want to be, they say, I want to start a peanut butter brand. Or you know, they want to start small challenges, often in package goods, right? Package goods are gonna come back again. Why? Because it's just become this. Very attractive path through life. I mean, clearly it's really hard work, but it's become this kind of very aspirational thing. And barriers have been lowered. It's quite easy to get money. It's quite easy to outsource manufacture. You don't need a kind of uh, company anymore. There's all sorts of new channels for selling stuff. You can influence through Instagram. So the combination of kind of ease and aspiration have meant that actually. To your point, there is a whole new challenger cohort coming through. And so you look at, you just go to LinkedIn and look at the number of people who have founder in their title, mm-hmm. exponentially larger than five years ago. Right? Everybody wants to do it. It's fun. It's exciting. Is it? And not everybody will succeed, but a lot of them will kind of gradually change the, the way and the shape of the categories that they're working.
0: Why do you think that is? So well, that's interesting you say that. You said it's fun and exciting, but why do you think there is that explosion, I guess, of more and more people wanting to create their own brands?
1: I think people have become increasingly disillusioned with large corporates. I think increasingly people have come to recognize that what historically they thought as a side project could be their main project. I think increasingly there is an idealism about wanting to do something meaningful and make a change. And often that can be expressed through business. I think maybe 20 years ago, I'm driven by idealism. I want to make a change. And I want to be in business. That was a fork in the road. Nowadays, it isn't, right? You can do Mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. And I think there is a search for meaning and purpose in people's lives. And they are using the medium of challenges and forming and starting their own challenger to express that and articulate that, sometimes for very good reasons and in a well-founded way, and sometimes not. But that's one of the reasons we're seeing this flood of opportunity. And I think the other thing, of course, is that we've been educated there's a pot of gold at the end of this particular rainbow if we're good enough and we're lucky enough. And in a sense, this is us buying our ticket in the lottery and, and seeing if we've got the substance to take it all away.
0: Do you think there's a part of this generation, too, that there's just so much dissatisfaction that they're just like, you know what, this is BS, I'm going to do this instead and sort of take on the ownership that they want to be the one to challenge or change it because of their dissatisfaction of the brands that are currently out there?
1: I do think there is that i mean I, clearly we know that there is a distrust of big right there's a distrust mm. of big government there's a distrust <clears> of big companies and that sense that what do i trust i think there was a fascinating gallup poll in the states that came out a couple of months ago about what are the institutions americans trust most and least and the ones they trusted least were big government and big business and big media the people they hear from most and what they trusted most was the military, interestingly enough, and also small businesses. Mm. So that sense there's a complete shift in what do I trust? What do I put my faith in? And to some degree, therefore, I need to kind of do it myself, right? Because I can't trust actually these people that I used to, these institutions I used to put my trust in to look after me. I'm not sure they're going to look after me anymore. I need to look right. after myself.
0: So what advice would you give somebody, either a new startup or an individual solopreneur who wants to be a challenger brand? Do you have any advice that you would share with them?
1: So I think, look, it's this is, this is really hard, isn't it? Because there are so many ideas out there and so many people have those ideas. I think that the mistake that people usually talk about, so if you, again, let's go back to these investors, what they'll talk about is lots of people have got a good idea. Right, Lots of people have got a good idea. Some people, lots of people got the same good idea. The difference is really in, have you got the ability to deliver it and really take it to market and deliver really well executionally? Have you put the team around it that you really need? So it's one thing for you to go out and do it. But actually, all these challenges are built by successful teams. If you've got the right cross-functional team, if you've got the right kind of patient investor Is going to commit to you and stick with you because inevitably there are going to be road bumps. Inevitably, it's not going to work out well. And then the fourth thing is have you got the ability to adapt and flex? So that's one of the things investors talk a lot about, which is very few startups exist after three or four years in the way that they started. So you've got to have a balance between stubbornness and adaptiveness. You've got to be really stubborn because actually being an entrepreneur requires a huge amount of stubbornness. On the other hand, hand you've got to be adaptive. There are some people and some things that you've got to listen to and pay attention to that mean, OK, let's, let's stop doing it like that. And let's flip into another mode. So that's a really hard balance to strike. So there are three or four things I think that are really important. And then the final thing is intelligent naivety, right? You've got to, you've got to <laughs> just believe it's going to happen because if you knew all the reasons why it wasn't going to happen, you'd never start.
0: Oh yeah, that's probably the biggest one because otherwise nobody would start. You know, absolutely right. You <laughs> your fear would prevent you from doing that. Well, those are all great tips, and I love learning about challenger brands and your new book. I want to switch gears here before we leave. I'm going to get a little personal here with you because I heard you had a little fetish, which I hope <laughs> it's okay if I bring it up here. I heard that you have a pencil fetish, and you know, me being in the swag world selling pens and pencils, I was intrigued by that. So so, tell me about that,
1: if you uh, don't mind. Well, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I think, as fetishes go, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a. a <laughs> that lot we can things. talk so, about here. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I think there is two things about it. First of all, I am very tactile, so I like I like atoms. I like reading books rather than Kindles. I love paper. So, there is something about the way that a pencil, when you are thinking through a pencil, and I think through writing. The way a pencil glides over paper is unlike anything else. It's not unlike a ballpoint or anything. Else. There's there's literally a sense of going anywhere, of fluidity of thoughts reflected in the fluid fluidity of the act of writing that I find intoxicating. And then secondly, a lot of it's about the sharpening, right? So I'm I don't I never use a pencil sharpener. I use a penknife, and there's something about the act of physically sharpening a blunt pencil with a penknife. Very carefully, you've got to do it quite carefully, and getting those beautifully kind of chiseled edges that it's like sharpening the mind. So it literally sharpens my mind. I, I once found in Milan a pencil shop that offered sandpaper so that once you'd finished sharpening with your pencil, you could then sand it down even further. And I bought that, but I've never used it. I think I keep thinking, no, that's really weird. You know, <laughs> that's a really serious fetish. I, I'm stopping with the with the, uh, the, the, the sharpening with a pen knife, but uh, no, it just it gives me great pleasure.
0: That's amazing. So have you always been into pencils? Like, has that been a lifelong thing or is that just since you yeah, started I used writing to, your books? Yeah, I used to
1: draw a lot as a kid and yeah. I like having pencils first. And, I, and I, I like being slightly constrained. Of course, I use a PC like everybody else. Of course you do, but I like drawing stuff I like and I like, actually I like fountain pens as well and big sheets of paper. I mean I show you the if I could lift up my computer I'd probably show it to you now. So, so for instance I tend to literally have a big pad in front of me oh, and I wow. just sit that and draw and write stuff. Oh, yeah right. and because okay. I like the expansiveness of what it kind of gives you in that kind right. of way. So and you um, use
0: a pen knife. That's incredible. So is there a particular brand of pencil that you like specifically?
1: I know that there are there are lots of different brands of pencils and I get given lots of different brands of pencils. I and I love all of them. I'm, I love all of them. As long as it's a nice, smooth lead, I'm happy with it.
0: When I heard that you like pencils, I thought maybe it's because you, versus a pen, you can actually erase it. Do you spend a lot of time erasing and how important is the eraser?
1: So I do have an eraser right in front of me, actually. It's one I bought the other day, but it's the, I realized it's the first one I bought for about four years. I don't really rub a lot of stuff out because one of the things about having a big pad is mm-hmm. you don't have to rub stuff out, right? Because actually it all stays there in some form and you just shift the balance into something else.
0: When that pad is full, what do you do with that top sheet?
1: I fold it up and I file it. Um, you do? Yeah. And then every year I throw it away.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. That's very No, that's all right. right. (laughs) People are picky, and you know, especially when pens, I mean, again, like I said, I sell tons of pens, right, with logos, Mm -hmm. and the look of the pen to me is not as important as how it writes. It has to write really nice and smooth and, you know, not smudge on your hand or anything like that, so yeah, it's amazing. Anyway, a little tidbit.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I can understand all of that.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come and join me here and share about Challenger Brands. If any Anyone wants to learn more about you or where they can find your new book, Overthrow, 10 Ways to Tell Tell a Challenger Story. How can they get a hold of that? Where is that available?
1: Yeah, so um, that's on Amazon. Then uh, you can reach me on my email, adam at eatbigfish.com. So my company's called Eat Big Fish. And if they're interested in learning more about challenges, but don't want to contact me, we have a free challenge project where we share our recent interviews and points of view about challenges that they might find interesting stimulus.
0: Very nice. And you're on social media?
1: I'm on Twitter for business stuff. I'm on Instagram for just photos of my local life, which would be less interesting to you all.
0: <laughs> And where does the name Eat Big Fish come from?
1: Well, the, the first book was called Eating the Big Fish. And mm-hmm. at the end of the book, I offered a kind of 10-page summary for people who are interested. And I was using AOL at the time. And AOL wouldn't let me use Eating the Big Fish as a handle, because I said it was too long. They made me shorten it to eat big fish. So when I started my company, I just called it that.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, so you wrote the book and then you started your company after you wrote the book. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. was that way around. Okay, cool. Well, thank you again. Now you can go to your local pub. You what What's the name of your local <laughs> pub? <laughs> and enjoy your first pint in probably, what, over a year?
1: Thank you. Yes, I can feel thirsty already. And I oh. will leave my pencils and my pencil sharpener at the moment <laughs> and head okay. straight out.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we will meet one day in person, whether in Canada or in the UK.
1: I look forward to it. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I really hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress. So please make sure to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to. And if you want to learn more about the Branding Badass, that's me, you can find me on social media under, you know it, Branding Badass. Thanks again. And until next time, Here's to all you badasses out there.